My name is Jared Williams, and this is the Startup Blueprint, the podcast designed for entrepreneurs, startups, and anyone who has ever wanted to turn a good idea into a great business. My guest today is in the fancy dress business. His company was founded in 2009 and achieved an impressive turnover of 1.2 million in the first year. By 2011, the company reported an expected turnover of 10 million and they fuel growth through strategic partnerships, major distribution deals and license agreements covering household names such as Star Wars, Marvel and Power Rangers. With figures and stats this impressive, you'd assume that the company was a result of careful planning and extensive market research. Well, not quite. And it was actually when we were on a skiing trip out in Canada and we'd been wearing the spandex suits on that night out and again had been mobbed and bought a load of free drinks and had a load of potential for girls. And then we said, well, we have to go home because we have to go and work on our entrepreneurial idea. You know, it won't build itself. And as we were walking home, thinking about this business that we had that was generating zero revenue and not getting much traction, we were like, you know, why don't we just sell these? And when we said it out loud, we were like, yeah, we really should do that. That would be a better idea than what we're working on. That was Fraser Smeaton, co-founder and CEO of Morph Suits, and you are listening to the Startup Blueprint. Now, despite all those impressive numbers, it hasn't all been plain sailing for Fraser or for Morph Suits. They've certainly had their fair share of challenges and failures, including a reported loss in 2016 of nearly one million pounds. But before we get to all that, let's dive into Fraser's younger years, way before the spandex took over. So I, I was born in Belgium and then we moved from there with my dad's job to a small village in Buckinghamshire, which, I was, uh, which we lived in until I was five. But you know, from my, the life I remember, uh, started in southeast Scotland in a little village called Gullen, where we moved to when I was five. Um, and I lived there until I went off to university when I was 18. It's a village of 2,000 people, has five championship golf courses, including Muirfield. Uh, so basically, it's a golfing tourist hotspot with not a lot else to do other than golf. Very cool. Any whiskey? I mean, there was certainly whiskey in the shops. There's no <laughs> distillery there, though. Cool. So you went to, in terms of university, you went to Edinburgh, is that correct? Yes. Yeah. And that's rugby. You you you're big into your rugby, is that right? I really yeah, I really enjoyed my rugby. So I played rugby for the university throughout my time there, and also for a local club. But I always knew I was never good enough to be a professional. Right. Much as though that would have been my dream. But yeah. you, when you're playing with professionals or people who go on to be professionals, you realise where the gaps lie right. and how you're not going to bridge them. Gotcha. And that's where you met Gregor. Yes. Is that right? Playing rugby or just a friend that you I actually met him in a, in a queue for a nightclub. Right. But then we realised that we both played rugby and uh, had a lot in common. Good place to start an important relationship. Um, so you, what, years did you leave, what year did you leave uni? I left in 2001. 2001. And then went off and did uh, the standard gap year of working holiday around Australia, Southeast Asia. But it's the most interesting part of it. We got the train east to west across America through a month, which was fascinating because most people never see the interior of America mm. and you learn an awful lot. Hug the coast. On, uh, yeah, exactly, hug the coast. And the, or the, they don't go through the flyover states and the American railways are incredibly slow. So you get a good 
chance to actually see what's going on in the interior of America, and it's different to anything you would see in the coast. I bet. Oh, that is, yeah, I'll make a note of that. That's very interesting. Um, so, you had a year off, so 2002, three. Yep. You, bright lights of London? Uh, no, not to start off with, much less glamorous than that. So I came back from that gap year in, I think in the summer, would have been the summer of 2002, and then started applying for graduate jobs. So I was back in my parents' house in my tiny village in, uh, in Scotland, applying for the jobs to start with the next intake in the summer of 2003. So I spent the winter sat in my parents' study in the freezing house doing 60 graduate applications for all the usual types of jobs from oil companies to management consultancies to FMCGs to finance houses, etc. when you really have no idea what you want to do. Right. And so where did you end up? I ended up at Mars Confectionery on their management training program. And the first role as part of that was cash and carry sales in southeast Scotland. So I had my, my reps car, my Volkswagen Golf, I had a boot full of chocolate bar samples and I had seven or eight cash and carries that I looked after. And you go and sit in the waiting room for your appointment with the all powerful buyer. And then you'd go and negotiate over display and distribution and promotion. And gritty as it was, it was a phenomenal grounding in retail. All the things that you'd never considered. If you have one facing of a Mars bar in a shop, your sales will be X. But if you put two Mars bars next to each other, your sales will be 140% of just one facing. And that's the competition around display and getting your product in front of the consumer in the right way. So it really gave me some great principles that have stood me in good stead for business going forward. Yeah, I, I, can, I can sense like that, the, the energy there. You, 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 yeah, interesting foundation that must have given you. Yeah. So how long, how long were you at Mars for? So I was at Mars for three and a half years and it was a three placement scheme. So I did cash and carry sales for the first placement. Then I went into finance. Uh, I was the first management trainee ever to request a uh, stint in finance. But I, I, I always wanted to run my own business or if failing that, because you, you never know if that's going to be possible, uh, to be a, a, in senior management in business somehow. And I knew that you had to understand finance to a level. So I put myself through that for a year. It was tough and I was pretty rubbish at it, but uh, I learned the basics of P&Ls and cash flow statements and all the things that we both know you fundamentally need to understand. Mm. So three and a half years there? Three and a half, and then final was the one that I actually found what I was passionate about was uh, marketing. And I actually went into there, they called it the Nova team, the new, the new opportunities and ventures accelerators, where they tried to take the core principles that Mars Confectionery was good at uh, food and nutrition and marketing and come up with new brands that were outside of the chocolate space. So we were working on fruit juices uh, back in the early 2000s when it was the hot space with uh, Innocent was just coming up and PJ smoothies and all that kind of stuff. And it was it was excellent. Mm. Yeah, you came up with lots of ideas, you tested them with qualitative and quantitative research, you pitched back to a board of senior managers uh, to get more funding for your project, then you developed the packaging, you went to trial launch, um, so I absolutely loved that and looking back that is probably what gave me the passion to one day want to run my own business wow that sounds really interesting that sounds a really interesting space as in like very very kind of entrepreneurial innovative kind of ecosystem within a giants of giants yeah and uh, you know all of us who are around this space you hear lots of the talks of how the, the giant companies want to be more innovative and how they can be but it's it's quite a contradictory stance within their, against their core businesses, which are huge and efficient, and they're to 
almost stifle innovation or other people's innovation so they can keep their competitive advantage. So there's always a real tension between the two. And, uh, and I've seen it in other companies as well. What happens is you get one team of management who are very positive about the new opportunities and ventures accelerator in these big companies. And then you get the next management team who says, no, we need to refocus on our core because otherwise if we don't focus on that and that's what we're really about, we'll you know we've got nothing mm. so it comes up and down up and down and that's why I don't think anyone's ever found the real right answer uh, for how to do innovation within a big corporate but it was certainly interesting when we were there and they were supporting it yeah and so after did you did you go from Mars to BT or was there someone in between no I went from Mars straight to BT um, working in their consumer team um, which was really interesting uh, so the first role I had there was working on the propositions for broadband, which I thought was going to be more exciting than it actually was in terms of I thought we'd be crafting exactly how the customer experienced broadband. We weren't really, we were working on the pricing and the deals that you see, three months free, six months free, you get this free or it's £50 for the wireless router. That was the proposition. So I didn't really enjoy that because there wasn't enough flexibility to actually make something that was going to make a difference. Mm. But again, it was, it was good understanding of how uh, people tweak their product proposition within an industry where the actual product is always the same in terms of broadband. They tweak around the edges so they can communicate it differently. So I did that for about nine months in propositions, then I moved on to their acquisition team. So acquiring broadband customers and communications marketing with the responsibility for the customer numbers. And I absolutely loved that. I did that for two or three years through the highly competitive years of British, the British mm. broadband market, where first Talk Talk went to free broadband, which shook everything up. I mean, most people probably won't remember, but previously broadband was pretty steady. It was slow speed. It was £25 a month. And then they came in with free broadband and everyone was like, oh, what's going to happen? We're going to lose the entire market. So everything had to be rejigged and the propositions changed and the marketing changed. And then Sky came in and it, you know, it, it was an era which case studies will be written about that whole early time of broadband and it was great to be around that at the time and BT actually came out of it really well mm. and so you you stayed with BT we'll come on to 2010 but the the actual idea for your your baby your business 2009 is that correct I actually think it was probably a bit earlier than that it was 2006 or 2007 right but we didn't have it as an idea for a business at that point. We were on a boys' weekend in Dublin, and we were dressing up in fancy dress, and everyone had been assigned a colour. And one friend turned up in an all-in-one spandex suit, a blue one, because he'd been assigned blue. Somehow I'd been assigned brown, which was less, much less fun. Um, he turned up in this all-in-one blue suit, and we were in, we were doing a pub crawl in Dublin, and we were walking down one of the streets there, and there was street theatre going across, and literally, people who were watching the street theatre turned round to see this costume that he was wearing. He was then mobbed, hundreds of photos, people offering to buy him a drink, people asking where he bought it. So we were like, wow, we're all wearing costumes. We've worn costumes before, we've never seen a reaction like this. This is unbelievable. Um, but at that time, you know, we're happy in our job, said no, we weren't really focusing on coming up with uh, entrepreneurial ideas or anything, so we just used this costume again for other events. Free the, drinks, yeah, some free attention drinks from girls. Posters, yes. Free drinks and attention for girls is exactly what we used it for right. uh, back in those A worthy days. cause. cause so, worthy worthy causes. causes, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, but 
from say 2006 to 2009 when we launched it every time we wore it for a stag do or a boys weekend or a sports event the reaction was always the same and even when we wore it in different countries the reaction was the same so gradually this idea was beginning to dawn on us that we really had something here that people want to buy and actually so in the intervening years we had then been trying some other entrepreneurial ideas in our spare time while we kept our corporate jobs and they weren't working very well and it was actually when we were on a skiing trip out in Canada and we'd been wearing the spandex suits on that night out and again had been mobbed and bought a load of free drinks and had a load of potential for girls and then we said well we have to go home we have to go and work on our entrepreneurial idea you know it won't build itself and as we were walking home thinking about this business that we had that was generating zero revenue and not getting much traction we were like you know why don't we just sell these and when we said it out loud we were like yeah, we really should do that. That would be a better idea than what we're working on. And I don't think we ever did any more work on that previous idea. From that moment onwards, we just focused on on launching Morphsies. So there wasn't a eureka moment in a sense of like the idea blowing up in front of you, but it was a gradual thing that suddenly then one of you actually said what was at the back of all your minds. Yes, that's exactly right. The concept blew up in front of us multiple times as this is a good thing, but the making that leap saying, we should actually sell this. Just, yeah, one of us said, and and everyone went, yeah, why have we never said that before? And then we went on from there. Right. And became our our number one focus. So as you dropped those other um, businesses that you were focusing on, and you you still got your daytime job, what what did the initial vision look like if someone I guess if someone has said to you what, what what do you want out of this what's in your wildest dreams what are you going to get what does success look like I know exactly what we said about that we want to sell 20,000 suit, morph suits in total over the life of this business and I want to make enough money for a heli skiing holiday wow that's very specific that was very specific but we couldn't think that this spandex suit business was going to do any more than that I mean we were sensible corporate business people this was an all-in-one spandex suit business we were like I mean it's not going to be our livelihoods it's not going to be our future we had no idea of the scale of the costume business in the world at that point we we were just outsiders so we thought that was a pretty ambitious goal bear in mind our our uh, supporting evidence was our previous businesses that had made zero revenue so 20,000 suits was pretty ambitious for us yeah so do you know the figure today, just to kind of like, to, to compare that initial goal against how many morph suits have you sold today? Uh, I don't know the total number that we've sold today, but I know that we sold around 900,000 costumes this year. Wow. And the business is nine years? Nine years old. Yeah. Wow. Incredible. And congrats. It's phenomenal. Um, so... 2009 into 2010 how how was the initial growth was it was it immediate yes it was pretty immediate but I mean it was immediate off a very low base because the immediate start was going on Alibaba and finding a supplier and pretty much the only supplier of all-in-one spandex suits in the world at that point I think and negotiating with them to supply us with 200 suits with our modifications we worked on the material in front of your face so you could see out a little better and our best marketing idea was people didn't know what to call them when they were coming up to us in bars and we've been wearing them previously they were like what's this and we were like it's a morph suit they didn't know what to search for they knew they wanted one but they didn't know what to search for so we thought to answer that problem we would just write morphsuits.com on the backside of every single one because uh, there's also an understanding that a lot of boys don't want to go up to other guys and go oh my, I love what you're wearing can you please tell me mm. where you got that yeah. but they will happily plagiarise 
from someone. So by making it easy for them so they don't have to have that awkward conversation and just writing it on the backside, uh, we answered that, that marketing problem. And they're probably watching every other girl, in, every girl in the bar go up to you anyway. It, so they don't want to kind of join the queue. It, 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 there's that kind of thing. And they don't want to say, oh my God, you're my hero. I want to be like you. Where do you buy your clothes? Exactly. So if they saw the great response, they'll say, well, actually, for my next stag do, I'm having one of them. And that's exactly what happened. Uh, so everyone we sold became a walking advert. So we got these 200 suits in in about five or six plain colors. They were in my bedroom in Stockwell at the time. And we'd made our little website for a thousand pounds because the three founders had each put in a thousand pounds. And uh, we started some Facebook advertising way back, this is 2009, because I'd done a little bit of it as part of my day job at, at BT. So I knew it was there. I knew this was a visual idea and therefore would suit Facebook very well. It would suit Facebook much better than broadband, to be honest. Um, so we did a little bit of Facebook advertising. We sold the first few. Those people went out and walked around in them. They became walking adverts, generating huge amounts of attention, the same attention that we'd previously seen ourselves generate. People could see morsuits.com written on the backside. It was the early days of camera phones, so they took pictures of it. They knew for their next event, they bought more, and we sold out of those 200 in I think about two or three weeks. Amazing. What was it like to hit send on that money to Alibaba? Or through Alibaba, sorry, to the Chinese supplier? It was nerve-wracking, but it got more nerve-wracking. A thousand pounds was a lot of money to us. I mean, we weren't on big money, but it wasn't the be-all and end-all. If that money had disappeared, we, we would never have started the company again because we would have lost trust, but it wouldn't have ruined us. Um, and they, they sent their products back and they did really well for us. The next one was a bit more nerve-wracking because we took all the profits from the first 200, we took all of our savings, and so it was the next order uh, was about seven, 7,000 pounds each we put in. So that was everything we had, so that was more nerve-wracking, but they delivered on that order. Um, so we were building up trust as we went, but that would have been catastrophic at that point. And then by the end of the year, as it had grown and grown and grown, we were sending 50, 60, 70,000 dollars per payment to this factory in China that we'd never met. Um, and yeah, with hindsight at any point, if something had gone wrong, that would have been the end of us as a business. But to be honest, we didn't really have another option. Is there, is, is there anything looking back you would have done differently? Would you have, would, you know, maybe that went before hitting send on that 21,000 pounds, would you have taken a trip over? Would that have been a sensible, or do you just think you should have cracked on with the marketing over here and taken the risk? I think on that, the, the 20,000 pounds one, we. The, there wasn't time, you know, we'd sold out the first one in two weeks and we needed more and we had jobs and no idea of how to get to China or a visa or anything else like that. Uh, so the, I think the delay, so not taking the risk would have been more damaging to the business than the risk of, of getting fleeced for our money. Um, but yes, probably by the end of the year, we should have done that. Hmm. But I think it comes down to perspective again. Yeah. We still thought it was a 20,000 suit business. And so it, if, it, if we got screwed over, we got screwed over, it was all right. We didn't see it against the perspective of where it is now, where we're actually being, if we, if we had lost that money, we wouldn't have got to where we are now. Yeah. So perspective's interesting and the, the benefit of looking forward or compared to hindsight. So the, those first few sales went through um, website utilising social media. Um, well, at what point did you start adding other routes to market? Um, so we were website only through the first about 14 months um, because again we thought we were going to sell 20,000 units and we thought 
if we're only going to sell that many and there's a finite constrained market, I want to sell them all through my website because I make the most margin out of that. I don't want to give it away to a retailer because they're all going to come to my website anyway. We completely misread how elastic the market was and how distribution increases your uh, the total size of the pie. Um, and it was actually a old flatmate of mine's dad. He had been in the he was an agent for Mattel, so he knew about the toy and the costume trade, uh, wholesale trade. And he contacted us through my friend and said, you know, you should come to a trade show and we'll show you how to do this and we'll be your agents for you and we should promote this great idea. And we were like, well, I'm not sure. You know, we want to sell them all for our website. Um, but then we eventually said we'll go along, and we went along to the Autumn Fair at the NEC, and we got an amazing response from what was the independent party shop trade at that point. Uh, you turn up wearing... Yeah, we turn up wearing a little stand, literally three square metres, and you're stood in your... Amazing. You're stood in your morph suits, and we still do this. We can come on, we're still doing that at trade shows all around the world. Awesome. Um, and... Uh, we got an amazing response from the retailers and we saw the volumes that even little mom and pop fancy dress stores, the type that's in every town around the country, the volumes that they were ordering, and then we, we got our first understanding of how big the market could potentially be. And because of the success of that first trade show, we signed up to the Houston Halloween International Show, or whatever it's called, um, for the next January. And this was what really changed the business because we diligently sent out an email uh, to all the people attending saying, this is us, we've got 150,000 Facebook followers, you know, the new big thing in costumes. And we had our, again, our three square meters of space and our little board behind us and we're stood there. And we got, the first approaches we got were from the senior buyers at a chain called Party City who have 750 permanent stores and at Halloween that goes up to about 1200 stores. And they approached us with a deal for exclusivity committing to buy hundreds of thousands of suits and we were like wow. wow so this is year two or three now this is 18 months in wow so let, let's dive into that partnership then what what was your initial reaction to just the the, the potential implications of good and bad of of exclusivity um, so because we came from FMCG background, so Greg and my business partner was at Procter & Gamble and we both worked with the major retailers in this country, we knew, we knew a bit about the power dynamic between supplier and retailer. Um, yes, supplier and retailer. And um, we didn't want to put all our eggs in their basket, particularly in an early stage where we knew nothing about them, we knew nothing about their ethics and how they would work with you. Um, and we hadn't even agreed margin or price or anything because so we could have agreed would be exclusive and not marketed ourselves at the trade show and then we wouldn't have been able to agree on margin so we said we'll get through the show see where our orders are at and then we'll sit down with you and talk about this and we actually agreed a halfway house where we were exclusive with them in terms of multiple retailers but we were allowed to keep our independent business and our website etc so we balanced it off a bit and uh, it was a, a really successful partnership and they are they are a great company to work with and we continue to work closely with them oh fantastic so, so you you as a, as a founding team, you really drew upon that that background in in marketing in FMCG and in, in those power dynamics. That seems to have really kind of played out very well. Yeah, I mean, I can't. You, I will never know how it would have played out if we'd agreed full exclusivity. But I'm happy mm. with the thinking that we did and the outcome that we came to. Fantastic. So, how how did growth kind of continue? You know, beyond those initial eighteen months. Um, 
staying in staying in the partnerships did, did other big partnerships spring up in other territories no because there really aren't many multiple retailers that embrace costumes in the same way as the Americans because American Halloween is so much bigger than everywhere else and because we were exclusive with one of their biggest players that precluded us from being in the other big players but the growth was still phenomenal through those first mm. three and four years um, we we invested more of our profits into the Facebook advertising. We got more people walking around with morph suits written on them. Uh, consumer awareness grew. The fact that we were selling hundreds of thousands of units through a multiple retailer got even more people out wearing it. And effectively, we created this all-in-one spandex suit category and we became the category name. Morph suits became the name of the spandex category in the same way that Hoover is or was for vacuum cleaners and Kleenex is for tissues, particularly in the US. So yeah we grew and grew and grew but then we became a victim of our own success in that it was a product that was successful because people were like wow what is that and then we'd sold so many of them that there was less of an impact of wow what is mm. that so we had to then innovate from away from the solid color ones to characters and we got licenses like Spider-Man and Power Rangers and uh, we created our own characters and we created our own designs and we kept innovating forward so that's so, so you uh, on that point then, a key, a key part of you moving forward, continuing to grow, has obviously been staying on top of trends. Yeah. Is, is that, how do you kind of proactively do that? Do, do, you have, do you have a day of the week where you sit around and you just kind of think about the blue sky? Or do you, do you, you know, or, or is it just ideas come and... It's not as formal as that. It's sort of halfway house between completely informal and, uh, and formal. So we, we have an NPD process that we're always gathering information, trends, thoughts into one place that we then, then sift through and think that's a good idea, that's a bad idea. And those that may come from lots of different places. Having a big social media following that we engage with is great because they sometimes bring us ideas, our followers, they're like, you should make this one, you should make that one. So that's really useful and some of our best ideas have come out of things like that. We also spend a lot of time on places like Instagram now and you see what other people are doing in other categories and you try and draw parallels or how that material technology could be applied to costumes etc and try and bring that across we're also looking we're always looking at Amazon for what's selling under big search terms like Halloween costumes and things like that to get information there and we put it all together we then mix in what we know about our consumer and our customers and what would work for them, what would not work for them, what are our strengths as a business and then we come up with our long list of NPD for the next year and then we f try and create rough outlines for that we sift through and go now that one's rubbish that's rubbish. That's quite cool and then we take that to our retail customers and they'll go some of that's rubbish, some of that's cool and eventually you come up with your ideas at the bottom for the range. Amazing um, so just going on to something which probably doesn't sound as sexy to talk about but the, but some of the legal sides that I assume your business has, has, has faced because price wise there is a low I assume there's a low barrier to entry to someone either producing themselves or going to a Chinese factory and saying can you knock this together and I'll stick uh, a different word on, on, on yeah. the bum you know so how, how have you dealt with the kind of copycat so we trademarked Morph Suits from day one, which is one of the best decisions we've ever made. Um, and then it surprised us how quickly the copycats came into the market. So I think within about three months, we had Super Suits, Who Suits, Pratt Suits, uh, Guest Suits, Super Skins. There have literally been 50 or 60 
different companies tried to have a go at the category. But we had first mover advantage and we had the category name. And because we were first mover adva- advantage, we were able to charge more than they were. So we were about five pounds price premium compared to the, the small knockoffs. And then as we grew faster, we obviously got better prices from our factory. So we, our prices came down, so our margins went up. Um, so we had more money to invest in advertising and make our name the name for the category. And that just created more and more distance between us and the knockoffs. Uh, and that was enough that you, you watch them come and go for six months. They obviously weren't as successful as they hoped. Their advertising would drop off, their price would come down. So they were getting less margin, so less money for advertising, and they would drop away, then another person would try it for a while, and then they would drop away. Has there ever been a serious contender? So, one- so not, not, on, not in the internet world. So no, no one's ever been able to push us in that area for the reasons I've discussed. What was a big threat to us was the big incumbent costume companies who had all the retailer relationships, all the Chinese manufacturing set up, and they didn't try and brand it, they just created a product for much less money than we could, much less quality as well, but, and then put it, took it to their retailer relationships that they already had. Mm. Um, Have you ever taken the decision to take someone to court? So we couldn't on when they didn't use our name. So we took people to court when they tried to use our name through their marketing or on their products. But that wasn't the big players. That was tended to be the small and medium-sized players who thought that they could get away with using the morph suit trademark. So yeah, we generally handle it through settlements before it gets to court. But we've had have had to go to court a couple of times. Interesting. Um, changing gears slightly, um, you mentioned the first couple of rounds of investment, essentially, which came from the the, the founding team, uh, the initial kind of three thousand and the twenty-one thousand. What, what other kind of um, investment events have, has there been along the line? So obviously that was very small amounts of money at the, the beginning of our process, all from the founders. And then when we were three years in, in uh, well, three and a half years in 2012, we took investment from the Business Growth Fund uh, to finance the next steps. Because at that point we realized, we knew we were a one product business. And we realized we were gonna have to invest to diversify. So, uh, yeah, we brought them on board for a minority equity stake um, and a seat on our board, and they have supported us through eventually what actually was the bad times as we had to work to diversify away from our one product. So they've really, they, the BGF state that they are, they're not private equity, they're long-term patient capital. And they really have lived up to that because mm. they were patient with us while we, while we made some mistakes. Yeah, they've got a very interesting setup, haven't they? Actually? Yes, they have. Yeah. Um, so that was a sizable investment, wasn't it? It was. Yeah, it was over four million pounds. Wow! And when when they invested, did they was was it very open that there was going to be a period where you were looking to d- diversify and possibly take the foot off in terms of? Um, we were open that we were trying to diversify. We it wasn't that we weren't open. We were we were more optimistic than reality proved with how successful and how quick we would be at diversifying. Interesting. So we had a plan to diversify, but it was the wrong plan to dis- diversify. And so, did that bring someone new to the to the board as well? Uh, yeah. So one of their investment managers sat on our board and still sits on our board. Brilliant. And 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 has that changed the dynamic? Has it just has it all been positive or? Um, it's, it's been certainly more professional. I mean it. 
being entirely honest, we are a niche market. So it's unlikely that you get someone from an investment manager who knows a lot about the fancy dress industry and adds value in that way. Where the BGF and the chairman that they brought on have added a lot of value was in terms of professionalizing us as a business. Because we were all young in those days, corporate middle managers. We were very operationally experienced, or not very, we were operationally experienced, but we never sat on the board. We never touched corporate governance because that's not what you do when you're a marketing manager at Procter & Gamble or a mid-ranking banker, a corporate banker, or selling broadband. You, you don't get involved in that kind of stuff. You don't sit on the board. You're all about hitting your operational targets. So we were good there. They helped us with that area. Mm. So almost drifting onto the, the company culture, um, you know, there was three of you at the beginning. What, what, what's the team looked like throughout throughout the history in terms of kind of like how it's grown? So there's three of us through those first three or four years and then we brought in a finance director um, who was a guy that had qualified as an accountant with my brother who was a co-founder so we knew him. I think those early hires are super crucial. If you bring in someone who's a finance director and you don't know them very well and it's not a good fit and you get that first one wrong, that's going to be a big problem because you just don't have the size and scale to be able to absorb a bad hire. So I think using a personal network there was really useful because we knew that he would be the right cultural fit. We knew he was skilled. My brother's words were, he's a much better accountant than me. <laughs> so uh, that's why we knew he was going to be good. And he's still with us as our finance director and it's been a, a really great hire. Fantastic. Um, and and then, today, where's, where, where's the team at today? So while we were trying to diversify and we were flush with investment cash, we probably overhired and we didn't put enough effort into it. Um, so we got up to 30, 32 people. Um, and then after three or four years of that, we realized we had to get focused back onto our core and we got onto the right diversification plan. And we're now, we dropped right back down to 17, but now as we're growing strongly again, we are, I think we'll get back up to about 21, 22 by the end of the year and there'll be another three or four hired, certainly in the early part of next year. However, we put a lot more effort into the hiring now in terms of understanding the plan that we're trying to execute and the role that person will play in the plan and also in terms of the recruitment process to make sure that the person we're bringing in is the right person both in terms of skill set and cultural fit mm. because getting the wrong people into the wrong roles is enormously damaging for your business. Mm. So other than other than those couple of things you, you mentioned in terms of possibly reaching out through your personal network um, or putting a little bit more effort in, what, what is it you look for some what is it you look for in someone as they're sat opposite you and you're interviewing them? What are some of the kind of core traits? Um, so we look for intellectual horsepower. They need to be clever um, so that they can handle the, the broad range of data and inputs that's coming to them and draw the right conclusions. We look for a track record of success. I think you know, it doesn't have to be in business because a lot of the people we hire are young, but school, extracurricular activities, we want people who have achieved something and ideally achieved something several times in different areas because we think that's the best indicator to future success and then finally cultural fit um, we we want them to be our type of person um, who works hard but is affable and sociable and will get on with the office and bring energy to the office not sap energy from the office these are all basics like every entrepreneurial talk I went to in the early days was like the biggest mistake I've made is focus on the people you hire. And I was like, yeah, whatever. You know, of course we'll get that right. But you get back 
what you put in and we didn't put enough effort in in the early days and we didn't listen to those lessons and that was a mistake so it, moving on to culture when you when you have got those first few hires in what what what, what do you what have you done proactively to create the right culture in, in the company so the, the, there's just the, in the early days when the founders are still a big part of the business or in, even numbers wise are a big proportion of the business I think role modeling is the is the best thing you can do so we're working and the way we work sets an example for all the, the other people in the team when you get more people that the effect of that diminishes so at that point we brought in values that we try to talk about and example and hero and reward when we see them and in our case it's hate your targets um, take ownership of whatever you're working on and learn and grow and if you do those things pretty simply then you'll probably be a good fit with us mm, fantastic so moving on to some of the ups and downs then what um What's been the lowest point on, on the journey since 2009? Um, the lowest point, very clear, was when uh, it, it became clear that our diversification plan, as we'd set it out at that point, wasn't going to work. Um, we'd invested a lot of money and a lot of time in trying to retail other people's products through our websites, so adding in other costume companies' products onto our websites. and We added 3,000 products across nine countries and you can imagine the huge amount of work time effort and money that had gone into that we'd just come through Halloween and we hadn't sold enough of them to cover the costs even to cover the variable costs of storing them in our warehouses so I realised that um, three years on from making a very large profit we were going to make a very large loss I realised we were going to have to let a lot of people go and uh, and I realised that I had to do that and that I had a kid being born my first kid in two weeks time so there was an awful lot of pressure on at that point so it was it, you know it was the it was a double whammy of first of all feeling that you let down all those people who you'd convinced to join your company and follow your vision of this is what we're going to do and they've made sacrifices and then we're going to have to let them go I, I felt that let down very heavily and then secondly on a personal level it was like we had something that was very successful and very valuable two or three years ago and now we might have something that is in financial trouble and comparing those two points is much more painful than having never known the top because you're like i got to the top and i've messed this up how terrible is that so that was a really low point mm. and you you obviously as as a as a business as founders and and, and as an as an individual you you turn that around so how did that happen again it's a little bit of a cliche but as like all cliches they quite often got some truth in them we got back to understanding what we did well and when we focused on that we were clear what we had to do we were clear that we could do it with a much smaller team and with much lower costs and that is the core of what fixed us. The, the detail of it is, first of all, we cut our costs back down so that we were financially no longer uh, a ri at risk of going under. Um, and then with that smaller team, we got back to, right, we make cool costumes, we market them effectively on social media, and then we sell them through our distribution channels of our websites, through Amazon Marketplace and Amazon, and through our multiple retail customers and partners around the world. And once we were very clear on that, 
we came up with two new ranges of costumes that were a big success. We, we got the marketing back on point and much more creativity because I no longer had all the struggles of the much more complex business before so we could focus on making creative advertising again. And those two ranges have been a big success. Morph Suits is growing and the whole business is much more stable. And then coming out of that, we realized that we built up a skill set and a competitive advantage on Amazon, which is the growing channel within costumes. And uh, we've invested more in that and really powered the growth through that channel as well. So we, we had yeah, the core benefit and then a nice side benefit that's given us our route forward and got us to where we are today. Interesting. And, and how about the more positive other, other side? L- looking back on the last nine years, what, what are you most proud of? I'm most proud of turning that business around. So setting up at the beginning and being as successful as we were, a lot of that was down to the quality or the intangible quality of the product idea. When you've got a product idea that people are like, wow, that's amazing, it's not that hard to build a a big business. To get to the point where you've you've made some mistakes and your business is in trouble and then to find the right action and work through that low point and the lack of motivation that comes with that low point and turn the business around, that's the bit that I'll I'll look back on and think, we did well there. And what was the the reported loss in that low point? Uh, It was 800,000. And that was that was a real a real loss, not an accounting. Yeah. <laughs> so, what is what is the future? You know, we're we're creeping up on two thousand and nineteen. What and and so your your ten year anniversary. What what does the future hold for the business? Um, so I think the future is bright for us. Um, we will continue with our plan. We'll continue to develop new innovative ranges that we push through our distribution channels, and we're going to invest heavily in building up our Amazon skills and expertise uh, and competitive advantage to allow us to become the number one retailer of costumes on Amazon. Fantastic. And you, ha- you have to get asked this question. Is there, do you have a price? We don't have a, a clear price in our, in our mind. You know, there's always a price and a situation that people would accept. Um, but at the moment we're really enjoying what we're doing. We've got a route to plenty of growth that keeps us excited and keeps us interested. So it's not something we're proactively looking for. Mm. So I always like to end this show, which is called The Startup Blueprint, with a bit of a hypothetical scenario. So you're able to produce a blueprint for the perfect way to run your business. And you get to go back in time to 2009, 2009 and hand that to your younger self. Um, I'm gonna ask you a few questions, quick fire. Okay. What is it, what's basically contained in that blueprint? So, what is the most important characteristic that a founder needs? Uh, an open mind and learning from mistakes. Most important daily habit. Keep working hard. The biggest mistake to avoid? Hiring the wrong people. One piece of advice when it comes to managing your finances, cash flow and limited budget? Cash is king. Understand the difference between profit and cash flow. A lot of people starting businesses don't. One piece of advice when it comes to sales? Understand your, understand your customer. And possibly the same, one piece of advice when it comes to marketing? Uh, understand your consumer is also 
crucial. The secondly is be brave with your creative. One piece of advice when it comes to hiring the right people. Track record of success. One piece of advice when it comes to building the right company culture. Uh, that is much more, that's a much more complicated subject because you've got to look to what you want to achieve as a company, what you are like as founders and people and make something that's fit, that fits. Don't force the company culture into what you think it should be because you've read it in a book. Think what it needs to be for you, for you and your situation. Final piece of advice. What do you say to yourself as you hand over the blueprint? Keep working hard, never give up, and it'll be all right. Wow, Zers, what an episode and what a journey. So, what are the key takeaways? Firstly, a life-changing business idea could be staring you in the face when you least expect it. So remain open, curious, and of course, ready to take a leap of faith. Secondly, and as an entrepreneur, you need to take the time to really understand both your target market and human psychology. I just love the fact that Fraser realized that lads would not be willing to ask another lad where they bought a costume, but of course, they would happily plagiarize the idea. Next, remember that some of your best ideas are likely to come from your clients and your audience, so create strategies around collecting and utilizing their feedback. Also, Make sure that you invest in hiring the right people. How cool is a Morph, Morph Suits criteria for hiring? Here we go. Intellectual horsepower, a track record of success, and the right cultural fit. I love it. Similarly, make sure you are able to articulate your company values. For Fraser, this means hitting your targets, taking ownership, and continual learning. And speaking of company values, listen carefully to Fraser's matter-of-fact advice when he says, and I quote, don't force your company culture into what you think it should be because of what you've read in a book. Now that I absolutely love. So, onto the finance side of things. Cash is king, as we all know. And entrepreneurs should listen carefully to Fraser when he stresses the difference between profit and cash flow. Finally, and Fraser's closing words really do sum things up here, he and the other co-founders have worked damn hard. They faced massive amounts of adversity, and yet through perseverance, they've built and then effectively rebuilt an absolutely awesome business. My name is Jared Williams and this has been The Startup Blueprint, the podcast designed for entrepreneurs, startups, and anyone who's ever wanted to turn a good idea into a great business. 